Chapter One, Part Two, of The Rainbow, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Did he, or did he not, believe that he belonged to this world of Cossete and Ilkeston? There was nothing in it he wanted. Yet could he ever get out of it? Was there anything in himself that would carry him out of it? Or was he a dunder-headed baby, not man enough to be like the other young fellows, who drank a good deal and wenched a little without any question, and were satisfied? He went on stubbornly for a time. Then the strain became too great for him. A hot, accumulated consciousness was always awake in his chest. His wrists felt swelled and quivering. His mind became full of lustful images. His eyes seemed blood-flushed. He fought with himself furiously to remain normal. He did not seek any woman. He just went on as if he were normal, till he must either take some action or beat his head against the wall. Then he went deliberately to Ilkeston, in silence, intent and beaten. He drank to get drunk. He gulped down the brandy and more brandy till his face became pale, his eyes burning, and still he could not get free. He went to sleep in drunken unconsciousness, woke up at four o'clock in the morning and continued drinking. He would get free. Gradually the tension in him began to relax. He began to feel happy. His riveted silence was unfastened. He began to talk and babble. He was happy and at one with all the world. He was united with all flesh in a hot blood relationship. So, after three days of incessant brandy-drinking, he had burned out the youth from his blood. He had achieved this kindled state of oneness with all the world, which is the end of youth's most passionate desire. But he had achieved his satisfaction by obliterating his own individuality, that which it depended on his manhood to preserve and develop. So he became a bout-drinker, having at intervals these bouts of three or four days of brandy-drinking, when he was drunk for the whole time. He did not think about it. A deep resentment burned in him. He kept aloof from any women, antagonistic. When he was twenty-eight, a thick-limbed, stiff, fair man with fresh complexion, and blue eyes staring very straight ahead, he was coming one day down from Cossite with a load of seed out of Nottingham. It was a time when he was getting ready for another bout of drinking. So he stared fixedly before him, watchful yet absorbed, seeing everything and aware of nothing, coiled in himself. It was early in the year. He walked steadily beside the horse. The load clanked behind as the hill descended steeper. The road curved downhill before him, under banks and hedges, seen only for a few yards ahead. Slowly turning the curve at the steepest part of the slope, his horse britching between the shafts, he saw a woman approaching, but he was thinking for the moment of the horse. Then he turned to look at her. She was dressed in black, was apparently rather small and slight, beneath her long black cloak, and she wore a black bonnet. She walked hastily, as if unseeing, her head rather forward. It was her curious, absorbed, flitting motion, as if she were passing unseen by everybody, that first arrested him. She had heard the cart and looked up. Her face was pale and clear. She had thick, dark eyebrows and a wide mouth, curiously held. He saw her face clearly, as if by a light in the air. He saw her face so distinctly that he ceased to coil on himself, and was suspended. "'That's her,' he said involuntarily. 
As the cart passed by, splashing through the thin mud, she stood back against the bank. Then, as he walked still beside his britching horse, his eyes met hers. He looked quickly away, pressing back his head, a pain of joy running through him. He could not bear to think of anything. He turned round at the last moment. He saw her bonnet, her shape in the black cloak, the movement as she walked. Then she was gone round the bend. She had passed by. He felt as if he were walking again in a far world, not Cossethay, a far world, the fragile reality. He went on, quiet, suspended, rarefied. He could not bear to think or to speak, nor make any sound or sign, nor change his fixed motion. He could scarcely bear to think of her face. He moved within the knowledge of her, in the world that was beyond reality. The feeling that they had exchanged recognition possessed him like a madness, like a torment. How could he be sure? What confirmation had he? The doubt was like a sense of infinite space, a nothingness, annihilating. He kept within his breast the will to surety. They had exchanged recognition. He walked about in this state for the next few days, and then again like a mist it began to break to let through the common barren world. He was very gentle with man and beast, but he dreaded the starkness of disillusion cropping through again. As he was standing with his back to the fire after dinner a few days later, he saw the woman passing. He wanted to know that she knew him, that she was aware. He wanted it said that there was something between them, so he stood anxiously watching, looking at her as she went down the road. He called to Tilly. "'Who might that be?' he asked. Tilly, the cross-eyed woman of forty, who adored him, ran gladly to the window to look. She was glad when he asked her for anything. She craned her head over the short curtain, the little tight knob of her black hair sticking out pathetically as she bobbed about. "'Oh, why?' she lifted her head and peered with her twisted, keen brown eyes. "'Why, you know who it is. It's her from Vicarage, you know.' "'How do I know, you hen-bird?' he shouted. Tilly blushed and drew her neck in and looked at him with her squinting, sharp, almost reproachful look. "'Why, you do. It's the new housekeeper.' "'Aye, and what by that?' "'Well, and what by that?' rejoined the indignant Tilly. "'She's a woman, isn't she? Housekeeper or no housekeeper. She's got more to her than that. Who is she? She got a name?' "'Well, if she has, I don't know,' retorted Tilly, not to be badgered by this lad who had grown up into a man. "'What's her name?' he asked, more gently. "'I'm sure I couldn't tell you,' replied Tilly, on her dignity. "'And is that all as you've gathered, as she's housekeeping at the vicarage?' "'Have you mention of her name? But I couldn't remember it for my life.' "'Why, you riddle-skulled woman of nonsense! What have you got a head for?' "'For what other folks has got theirs for?' retorted Tilly, who loved nothing more than these tilts when he would call her names. There was a lull. "'I don't believe as anybody could keep it in their head,' the woman's servant continued, tentatively. "'What?' he asked. "'Why, her name.' "'How's that? She's fra some foreign parts or other.' "'Who told you that? That's all I do know, as she is.' "'And where do you reckon she's from, then?' "'I don't know. They do say as she hails fra th pole. I don't know.' Tilly hastened to add, knowing he would attack her. "'Fra th pole? Why do you hail fra th pole?' Who set up that menagerie confabulation? That's what they say. I don't know. Who says? Mrs. Bentley says as she's thrift pole, else she is a pole, a summit. 
Tilly was only afraid she was landing herself deeper now. Who says she is a Pole? They all say so. Then what's brought her to these parts? I couldn't tell you. She's got a little girl with her. Got a little girl with her? Of three or four, with a head like a fuzzball. Black? White? Fair as could be. And all of a fuzz. Is there a father, then? Not to my knowledge. I don't know. What brought her here? I couldn't say. Without Vicar Axter. Is the child her child? As I think so. They say so. Who told you about her? Why, Lizzie, a Monday. We seed her going past. You'd have to be rattling your tongues if anything went past. Brangwen stood musing. That evening he went up to Cossethay, to the Red Lion, half with the intention of hearing more. She was the widow of a Polish doctor, he gathered. Her husband had died, a refugee, in London. She spoke a bit foreign-like, but you could easily make out what she said. She had one little girl named Anna. Lensky was the woman's name, Mrs. Lensky. Brangwen felt that here was the unreality established at last. He felt also a curious certainty about her, as if she were destined to him. It was to him a profound satisfaction that she was a foreigner. A swift change had taken place on the earth for him, as if a new creation were fulfilled, in which he had real existence. Things had all been stark, unreal, barren, mere nullities before. Now they were actualities that he could handle. He dared scarcely think of the woman. He was afraid. Only all the time he was aware of her presence, not far off, he lived in her. But he dared not know her, even acquaint himself with her by thinking of her. One day he met her walking along the road with her little girl. It was a child with a face like a bud of apple blossom, and glistening fair hair, like thistledown sticking out in straight, wild, flamy pieces, and very dark eyes. The child clung jealously to her mother's side when he looked at her, staring with resentful black eyes. But the mother glanced at him again, almost vacantly, and the very vacancy of her look inflamed him. She had wide, grey-brown eyes, with very dark, fathomless pupils. He felt the fine flame running under his skin, as if all his veins had caught fire on the surface, and he went on walking without knowledge. It was coming, he knew, his fate. The world was submitting to its transformation. He made no move. It would come. What would come? When his sister Effie came to the marsh for a week, he went with her for once to church. In the tiny place, with its mere dozen pews, he sat not far from the stranger. There was a fineness about her, a poignancy about the way she sat and held her head lifted. She was strange, from far off, yet so intimate. She was from far away, a presence, so close to his soul. She was not really there, sitting in Cossethay Church beside her little girl. She was not living the apparent life of her days. She belonged to somewhere else. He felt it poignantly, as something real and natural. But a pang of fear for his own concrete life, that was only Cossethay, hurt him and gave him misgiving. Her thick dark brows almost met above her irregular nose. She had a wide, rather thick mouth. But her face was lifted to another world of life, not to heaven or death, but to some place where she still lived, in spite of her body's absence. The child beside her watched everything with wide black eyes. She had an odd little defiant look. Her little red mouth was pinched shut. 
she seemed to be jealously guarding something, to be always on the alert for defence. She met Brangwen's near, vacant, intimate gaze, and a palpitating hostility, almost like a flame of pain, came into the wide, overconscious dark eyes. The old clergyman droned on. Cossetay sat unmoved as usual, and there was the foreign woman with a foreign air about her, in violet, and the strange child, also foreign, jealously guarding something. When the service was over he walked in the way of another existence out of the church. As he went down the church path with his sister, behind the woman and child, the little girl suddenly broke from her mother's hand, and slipped back, with quick, almost invisible movement, and was picking at something almost under Brangwen's feet. Her tiny fingers were fine and quick, but they missed the red button. "'Have you found something?' said Brangwen to her. And he also stooped for the button, but she had got it, and she stood back with it pressed against her little coat, her black eyes flaring at him, as if to forbid him to notice her. Then, having silenced him, she turned with a swift, "'Mother!' and was gone down the path. The mother had stood watching, impassive, looking not at the child, but at Brangwen. He became aware of the woman looking at him, standing there, isolated, yet for him dominant in her foreign existence. He did not know what to do, and turned to his sister. But the wide grey eyes, almost vacant, yet so moving, held him beyond himself. "'Mother, I may have it, mayn't I?' came the child's proud, silvery tones. "'Mother!' she seemed to always to be calling her mother, to remember her. "'Mother!' And she had nothing to continue now her mother had replied. "'Yes, my child.' But with ready invention the child stumbled and ran on. "'What are those people's names?' Brangwen heard the abstract. "'I don't know, dear.' He went on down the road, as if he were not living inside himself, but somewhere outside. "'Who was that person?' his sister Effie asked. "'I couldn't tell you,' he answered, unknowing. "'She's somebody very funny,' said Effie, almost in condemnation. "'That child's like one bewitched.' "'Bewitched? How bewitched?' he repeated. "'You can see for yourself. The mother's plain, I must say. But the child is like a changeling. She'd be about thirty-five.' But he took no notice. His sister talked on. "'There's your woman for you,' she continued. "'You'd better marry her.' But still he took no notice. Things were as they were. Another day, at tea-time, as he sat alone at table, there came a knock at the front door. It startled him like a portent. No one ever knocked at the front door. He rose and began slotting back the bolts, turning the big key. When he had opened the door, the strange woman stood on the threshold. "'Can you give me a pound of butter?' she asked, in a curious, detached way of one speaking a foreign language. He tried to attend to her question. She was looking at him questioningly. But underneath the question, what was there, in her very standing motionless, which affected him? He stepped aside and she at once entered the house, as if the door had been opened to admit her. That startled him. It was the custom for everybody to wait on the doorstep till asked inside. He went into the kitchen and she followed. His tea-things were spread on the scrubbed deal-table. A big fire was burning. A dog rose from the hearth and went to her. She stood motionless, just inside the kitchen. "'Tilly!' he called loudly. "'Have we got any butter?' The stranger stood there like a silence in her black cloak. "'Eh?' came the shrill cry from the distance. He shouted his question again. "'We've got what's on table. 
answered Tilly's shrill voice out of the dairy. Brangwen looked at the table. There was a large pat of butter on a plate, almost a pound. It was round and stamped with acorns and oak leaves. "'Can't you come when you're wanted?' he shouted. "'Why, what do you want?' Tilly protested, as she came peeking inquisitively through the other door. She saw the strange woman, stared at her with cross eyes, but said nothing. "'Haven't we any butter?' asked Brangwen again, impatiently, as if he could command some by his question. "'I tell you, there's what's on table,' said Tilly, impatient that she was unable to create any to his demand. "'We haven't a morsel besides.' There was a moment's silence. The stranger spoke, in her curiously distinct, detached manner, of one who must think her speech first. "'Oh, then thank you very much. I am sorry that I have come to trouble you.' She could not understand the entire lack of manners, was slightly puzzled. Any politeness would have made the situation quite impersonal. But here it was a case of wills in confusion. Brangwen flushed at her polite speech. Still he did not let her go. "'Get Summit and wrap that up for her,' he said to Tilly, looking at the butter on the table. And taking a clean knife, he cut off that side of the butter where it was touched. His speech the for her penetrated slowly into the foreign woman, and angered Tilly. "'Vicar has his butter for a browns by rights,' said the insuppressible servant-woman. "'We'll be churning to-morrow morning first thing.' "'Yes,' the long-drawn foreign yes. "'Yes,' said the Polish woman. "'I went to Mrs. Brown's. She hasn't any more.' Tilly bridled her head bursting to say that, according to the etiquette of people who bought butter, it was no sort of manners whatever, coming to a place, cool as you like, and knocking at the front door, asking for a pound as a stop-gap, while your other people were short. If you go to Brown's, you go to Brown's, and my butter isn't just to make shift when Brown's has got none. Brangwen understood perfectly this unspoken speech of Tilly's. The Polish lady did not. And as she wanted butter for the vicar, and as Tilly was churning in the morning, she waited. "'Slother up now,' said Brangwen loudly, after his silence had resolved itself out, and Tilly disappeared through the inner door. "'I am afraid that I should not come so,' said the stranger, looking at him inquiringly, as if referring to him for what it was usual to do. He felt confused. "'How's that?' he said, trying to be genial and being only protective. "'Do you?' she began deliberately but she was not sure of her ground, and the conversation came to an end. Her eyes looked at him all the while, because she could not speak the language. They stood facing each other. The dog walked away from her to him. He bent down to it. "'And how's your little girl?' he asked. "'Yes, thank you, she is very well,' was the reply, a phrase of polite speech in a foreign language merely. "'Sit ye down,' he said, and she sat in a chair, her slim arms coming through the slits of her cloak, resting on her lap. "'You're not used to these parts,' he said, still standing on the hearthrug, with his back to the fire, coatless, looking with curious directness at the woman. Her self-possession pleased him and inspired him, set him curiously free. It seemed to him almost brutal to feel so master of himself and of the situation. Her eyes rested on him a moment, questioning, as she thought of the meaning of his speech. "'No,' she said, understanding. "'No. It is strange.' "'You find it middling rough,' he said. Her eyes waited on him, so that he should say it again. "'Our ways are rough to you,' he repeated. 
Yes, yes, I understand. Yes, it is different. It is strange. But I was in Yorkshire. Oh, well then, he said, it's no worse here than what they are up there. She did not quite understand. His protective manner and his sureness and his intimacy puzzled her. What did he mean? If he was her equal, why did he behave so without formality? No, she said, vaguely, her eyes resting on him. She saw him fresh and naive, uncouth, almost entirely beyond relationship with her. Yet he was good-looking, with his fair hair and blue eyes full of energy, and with his healthy body that seemed to take equality with her. She watched him steadily. He was difficult for her to understand, warm, uncouth, and confident as he was, sure on his feet as if he did not know what it was to be unsure. What, then, was it that gave him this curious stability? She did not know. She wondered. She looked round the room he lived in. It had a close intimacy that fascinated and almost frightened her. The furniture was old and familiar as old people. The whole place seemed so kin to him, as if it partook of his being, that she was uneasy. "'It is already a long time that you have lived in this house, yes?' she asked. "'I've always lived here,' he said. "'Yes, but your people, your family?' "'We've been here uh, above two hundred years,' he said. Her eyes were on him all the time, wide open and trying to grasp him. He felt that he was there for her. "'It is your own place, the house, the farm?' "'Yes,' he said. He looked down at her and met her look. It disturbed her. She did not know him. He was a foreigner. They had nothing to do with each other. Yet his look disturbed her to knowledge of him. He was so strangely confident and direct. "'You live quite alone?' "'Yes, if, if you call it alone.' She did not understand. It seemed unusual to her. What was the meaning of it? And whenever her eyes, after watching him for some time, inevitably met his, she was aware of a heat beating up over her consciousness. She sat motionless and in conflict. Who was this strange man who was at once so near to her? What was happening to her? Something in his young, warm, twinkling eyes seemed to assume a right to her, to speak to her, to extend her his protection. But how? Why did he speak to her? Why were his eyes so certain, so full of light and confident, waiting for no permission, nor signal? Tilly returned with a large leaf and found the two silent. At once he felt it incumbent on him to speak, now the serving-woman had come back. "'How old is your little girl?' he asked. Four years,' she replied. "'Her father hasn't been dead long, then?' he asked. "'She was one year when he died.' Three years?' "'Yes, three years that he is dead, yes.' Curiously quiet she was, almost abstracted, answering these questions. She looked at him again, with some maidenhood opening in her eyes. He felt he could not move, neither towards her nor away from her. Something about her presence hurt him, till he was almost rigid before her. He saw the girl's wondering look rise in her eyes. Tilly handed her the butter, and she rose. "'Thank you very much,' she said. "'How much is it?' "'We'll make Vicar a present of it,' he said. "'It'll do for me going to church.' "'It'd look better of you if you went to church and took the money for your butter,' said Tilly, persistent in her claim to him. "'You'd have to put it in, shouldn't you?' he said. "'How much, please?' said the Polish woman to Tilly. Brangwen stood by and let be. "'Then thank you very much,' she said. "'Bring your little girl down sometimes to look at fowls and horses,' he said. 
if she'd like it. Yes, he would like it, said the stranger. And she went. Brangwen stood dimmed by her departure. He could not notice Tilly, who was looking at him uneasily, wanting to be reassured. He could not think of anything. He felt that he had made some invisible connection with the strange woman. A daze had come over his mind. He had another centre of consciousness. In his breast, or in his bowels, somewhere in his body, there had started another activity. It was as if a strong light were burning there, and he was blind within it, unable to know anything, except that this transfiguration burned between him and her, connecting them, like a secret power. Since she had come to the house, he went about in a daze, scarcely seeing even the things he handled, drifting, quiescent, in a state of metamorphosis. He submitted to that which was happening to him, letting go his will, suffering the loss of himself, dormant always on the brink of ecstasy, like a creature evolving to a new birth. She came twice with her child to the farm, but there was this lull between them, an intense calm and passivity, like a torpor upon them, so that there was no active change took place. He was almost unaware of the child, yet by his native good humour he gained her confidence, even her affection, setting her on a horse to ride, giving her corn for the fowls. Once he drove the mother and child from Ilkeston, picking them up on the road. The child huddled close to him as if for love. The mother sat very still. There was a vagueness, like a soft mist over all of them, and a silence as if their wills were suspended. Only he saw her hands, ungloved, folded in her lap, and he noticed the wedding ring on her finger. It excluded him. It was a closed circle. It bound her life, the wedding ring. It stood for her life in which he could have no part. Nevertheless, beyond all this, there was herself and himself which should meet. As he helped her down from the trap, almost lifting her, he felt he had some right to take her thus between his hands. She belonged as yet to that other, to that which was behind. But he must care for her also. She was too living to be neglected. Sometimes her vagueness, in which he was lost, made him angry, made him rage. But he held himself still as yet. She had no response, no being towards him. It puzzled and enraged him, but he submitted for a long time. Then, from the accumulated trouble of her ignoring him, gradually a fury broke out, destructive, and he wanted to go away, to escape her. It happened she came down to the marsh with the child whilst he was in this state. Then he stood over against her, strong and heavy in his revolt, and though he said nothing, still she felt his anger and heavy impatience grip hold of her. She was shaken again, as out of a torpor. Again her heart stirred with a quick, outrunning impulse. She looked at him, at the stranger who was not a gentleman, yet who insisted on coming into her life, and the pain of a new birth in herself strung all her veins to a new form. She would have to begin again, to find a new being, a new form, to respond to that blind, insistent figure standing over against her. A shiver, a sickness of new birth passed over her. The flame leaped up him, under his skin. She wanted it, this new life from him, with him, yet she must defend herself against it, for it was a destruction. As he worked alone on the land, or sat up with his ewes at lambing time, the facts and material of his daily life fell away, leaving the kernel of his purpose clean. And then it came upon him that he would marry her, and she would be his life. 
Gradually, even without seeing her, he came to know her. He would have liked to think of her as something given into his protection, like a child without parents. But it was forbidden him. He had to come down from this pleasant view of the case. She might refuse him. And besides, he was afraid of her. But during the long February nights with the ewes in labour, looking out from the shelter into the flashing stars, he knew he did not belong to himself. He must admit that he was only fragmentary, something incomplete and subject. There were the stars in the dark heaven travelling, the whole host passing by on some eternal voyage. So he sat, small and submissive, to the greater ordering. Unless she would come to him, he must remain as a nothingness. It was a hard experience. But after her repeated obliviousness to him, after he had seen so often that he did not exist for her, after he had raged and tried to escape, and said he was good enough by himself, he was a man and could stand alone, he must, in the starry multiplicity of the night, humble himself, and admit and know that without her he was nothing. He was nothing, but with her he would be real. If she were now walking across the frosty grass, near the sheep-shelter, through the threatful bleating of the ewes and lambs, she would bring him completeness and perfection. And if it should be so, that she should come to him, it should be so. It was ordained so. He was a long time resolving definitely to ask her to marry him, and he knew, if he asked her, she must really acquiesce. She must. It could not be otherwise. He had learned a little of her. She was poor, quite alone, and had had a hard time in London, both before and after her husband died. But in Poland she was a lady well-born, a landowner's daughter. All these things were only words to him. The fact of her superior birth, the fact that her husband had been a brilliant doctor, the fact that he himself was her inferior, in almost every way of distinction. There was an inner reality, a logic of the soul, which connected her with him. One evening in March, when the wind was roaring outside, came the moment to ask her. He had sat with his hands before him, leaning to the fire, and as he watched the fire he knew almost without thinking that he was going this evening. "'Have you got a clean shirt?' he asked Tilly. "'You know you've got clean shirts,' she said. "'Aye, bring me a white one.' Tilly brought down one of the linen shirts he had inherited from his father, putting it before him to air at the fire. She loved him with a dumb, aching love, as he sat leaning with his arms on his knees, still and absorbed, unaware of her. Lately a quivering inclination to cry had come over her, when she did anything for him in his presence. Now her hands trembled as she spread the shirt. He was never shouting and teasing now. The deep stillness there was in the house made her tremble. He went to wash himself. Queer little breaks of consciousness seemed to rise and burst, like bubbles out of the depths of his stillness. "'It's got to be done,' he said, as he stooped to take the shirt out of the fender. "'It's got to be done, so why bulk it?' And as he combed his hair before the mirror on the wall, he retorted to himself, superficially, "'The woman's not speechless dumb. She's not cluttering at the nipple. She's got the right to please herself, and displease whosoever she likes.' This streak of common sense carried him a little further. "'Did you want anything?' asked Tilly, suddenly appearing, having heard him speak. She stood watching him comb his fair beard. His eyes were calm and uninterrupted. "'Aye,' he said, "'where have you put the scissors?' She brought them to him, and stood watching, as, chin forward, 
He trimmed his beard. "'Don't go and crop yourself as if you was at a shearing contest,' she said anxiously. He blew the fine curled hair quickly off his lips. He put on all clean clothes, folded his stock carefully, and donned his best coat. Then, being ready, as grey twilight was falling, he went across the orchard to gather the daffodils. The wind was roaring in the apple-trees, the yellow flowers swayed violently up and down. He heard even the fine whispers of their spears, as he stooped to break the flattened, brittle stems of the flowers. "'What's to do?' shouted a friend, who met him as he left the garden-gate. "'Bit of courting, like,' said Brangwen. And Tilly, in a great state of trepidation and excitement, let the wind whisk her over the field to the big gate, when she could watch him go. He went up the hill, and on towards the vicarage, the wind roaring through the hedges, whilst he tried to shelter his bunch of daffodils by his side. He could not think of anything, only knew that the wind was blowing. Night was falling, the bare trees drummed and whistled. The vicar, he knew, would be in his study, the Polish woman in the kitchen, a comfortable room with her child. In the darkest of twilight he went through the gate and down the path, where a few daffodils stooped in the wind, and shattered crocuses made a pale, colourless ravel. There was a light streaming onto the bushes at the back from the kitchen window. He began to hesitate. How could he do this? Looking through the window, he saw her seated in the rocking-chair with the child, already in its nightdress, sitting on her knee. The fair head with its wild, fierce hair was drooping towards the fire-warmth, which reflected on the bright cheeks and clear skin of the child, who seemed to be musing, almost like a grown-up person. The mother's face was dark and still, and he saw with a pang that she was away back in the life that had been. The child's hair gleamed like spun glass. Her face was illuminated, till it seemed like wax lit up from the inside. The wind boomed strongly. Mother and child sat motionless, silent, the child staring with vacant dark eyes into the fire, the mother looking into space. The little girl was almost asleep. It was her will which kept her eyes so wide. Suddenly she looked round, troubled, as the wind shook the house, and Brangwen saw the small lips move. The mother began to rock. He heard the slight crunch of the rockers of the chair. Then he heard the low, monotonous murmur of a song in a foreign language. Then a great burst of wind. The mother seemed to have drifted away. The child's eyes were black and dilated. Brangwen looked up at the clouds, which packed in great, alarming haste across the dark sky. Then there came the child's high, complaining, yet imperative voice. "'Don't sing that stuff, mother. I don't want to hear it.' The singing died away. "'You'll go to bed,' said the mother. He saw the clinging protest of the child, the unmoved far-awayness of the mother, the clinging, grasping effort of the child. Then suddenly the clear, childish challenge. I want you to tell me a story. The wind blew. The story began. The child nestled against the mother. Brangwen waited outside, suspended, looking at the wild waving of the trees in the wind and the gathering darkness. He had his fate to follow. He lingered there, at the threshold. The child crouched, distinct and motionless, curled in against her mother, the eyes dark and unblinking among the keen wisps of hair, like a curled-up animal, asleep but for the eyes. The mother sat as if in shadow. The story went on as if by itself. Brangwen stood outside, seeing the night fall. 
He did not notice the passage of time. The hand that held the daffodils was fixed and cold. The story came to an end. The mother rose at last, with the child clinging round her neck. She must be strong to carry so large a child so easily. The little Anna clung round her mother's neck. The fair, strange face of the child looked over the shoulder of the mother, all asleep but the eyes, and these, wide and dark, kept up the resistance and the fight with something unseen. When they were gone, Brangwen stirred for the first time from the place where he stood, and looked round at the night. He wished it really were as beautiful and familiar as it seemed in these few moments of release. Along with the child he felt a curious strain on him, a suffering, like a fate. The mother came down again, and began folding the child's clothes. He knocked, she opened, wondering, a little bit at bay, like a foreigner, uneasy. "'Good evening,' he said. "'I'll just come in a minute.' A change went quickly over her face. She was unprepared. She looked down at him, as he stood in the light from the window, holding the daffodils, the darkness behind. In his black clothes she again did not know him. She was almost afraid. But he was already stepping onto the threshold, and closing the door behind him. She turned into the kitchen, startled out of herself by this invasion from the night. He took off his hat and came towards her. Then he stood in the light, in his black clothes and his black stock, hat in one hand and yellow flowers in the other. She stood away, at his mercy, snatched out of herself. She did not know him, only she knew he was a man come for her. She could only see the dark-clad man's figure standing there upon her, and the gripped fist of flowers. She could not see the face and the living eyes. He was watching her, without knowing her, only aware underneath of her presence. "'I come to have a word with you,' he said, striding forward to the table, laying down his hat and the flowers, which tumbled apart and lay in a loose heap. She had flinched from his advance. She had no will, no being. The wind boomed in the chimney, and he waited. He had disembarrassed his hands. Now he shut his fist. He was aware of her, standing there unknown, dread, yet related to him. "'I came up,' he said, speaking curiously, matter-of-fact and level, "'to ask you if you'd marry me. You are free, aren't you?' There was a long silence whilst his blue eyes, strangely impersonal, looked into her eyes to seek an answer to the truth. He was looking for the truth out of her. And she, as if hypnotised, must answer at length, "'Yes, I am free to marry.' The expression of his eyes changed, became less impersonal, as if he were looking almost at her, for the truth of her. Steady and intent and eternal they were, as if they would never change. They seemed to fix and to resolve her, she quivered, feeling herself created, willless, lapsing into him, into a common will with him. "'You want me?' she said. A pallor came over his face. "'Yes,' he said. Still there was no response and silence. "'No,' she said, not of herself. "'No. I don't know.' He felt the tension breaking up in him. His fists slackened. He was unable to move. He stood there looking at her, helpless in his vague collapse, for the moment she had become unreal to him. Then he saw her come to him, curiously direct, and as if without movement, in a sudden flow. She put her hand to his coat. "'Yes, I want to,' she said, impersonally, looking at him with wide, candid, 
newly opened eyes, opened now with supreme truth. He went very white as he stood, and did not move. Only his eyes were held by hers, and he suffered. She seemed to see him with her newly opened, wide eyes, almost of a child, and with a strange movement that was agony to him. She reached slowly forward her dark face and her breast to him, with a slow insinuation of a kiss that made something break in his brain, and it was darkness over him for a few moments. He had her in his arms, and, obliterated, was kissing her, and it was sheer bleached agony to him to break away from himself. She was there, so small and light, and accepting in his arms, like a child, and yet with such an insinuation of embrace, of infinite embrace, that he could not bear it, he could not stand. He turned and looked for a chair, and keeping her still in his arms, sat down with her close to him, to his breast. Then, for a few seconds, he went utterly to sleep, asleep and sealed in the darkest sleep, utter, extreme oblivion, from which he came too gradually, always holding her warm and close upon him, and she was as utterly silent as he, involved in the same oblivion, the fecund darkness. He returned gradually, but newly created, as after a gestation, a new birth in the womb of darkness. Aerial and light everything was, new as a morning, fresh and newly begun. Like a dawn the newness and the bliss filled in, and she sat utterly still with him, as if in the same. Then she looked up at him, the wide young eyes blazing with light, and he bent down and kissed her on the lips, and the dawn blazed in them, their new life came to pass. It was beyond all conceiving good. It was so good that it was almost like a passing away, a trespass. He drew her suddenly closer to him. For soon the light began to fade in her, gradually, and as she was in his arms her head sank, she leaned it against him, and lay still, with sunk head, a little tired, effaced because she was tired, and in her tiredness was a certain negation of him. "'There is the child,' she said, out of the long silence. He did not understand. It was a long time since he had heard a voice. Now also he heard the wind roaring, as if it had just begun again. "'Yes,' he said, not understanding. There was a slight contraction of pain at his heart, a slight tension on his brows, something he wanted to grasp and could not. "'You will love her?' she said. The quick contraction, like pain, went over him again. "'I love her now,' he said. She lay still against him, taking his physical warmth without heed. It was great confirmation for him to feel her there, absorbing the warmth from him, giving him back her weight and her strange confidence. But where was she, that she seemed so absent? His mind was open with wonder. He did not know her. "'But I am much older than you,' she said. "'How old?' he asked. "'I am thirty-four, she said. "'I am twenty-eight, he said. Six years.' She was oddly concerned, even if it pleased her a little. He sat and listened and wondered. It was rather splendid to be so ignored by her, while she lay against him, and he lifted her with his breathing, and felt her weight upon his living, so he had a completeness and an inviolable power. He did not interfere with her, he did not even know her. It was so strange that she lay there, with her weight abandoned upon him. He was silent with delight. He felt strong, physically, 
carrying her on his breathing. The strange, inviolable completeness of the two of them made him feel as sure and as stable as God. Amused, he wondered what the vicar would say if he knew. "'You needn't stop here much longer, housekeeping,' he said. "'I like it also here,' she said. "'When one has been in many places, it is very nice here.' He was silent again at this. So close on him she lay, and yet she answered him from so far away. But he did not mind. "'What was your own home like when you were little?' he asked. "'My father was a landowner,' she replied. "'It was near a river.' This did not convey much to him. All was as vague as before, but he did not care whilst she was so close. "'I am a landowner, a little one,' he said. "'Yes,' she said. He had not dared to move. He sat there with his arms round her, her lying motionless on his breathing, and for a long time he did not stir. Then, softly, timidly, his hands settled on the roundness of her arm, on the unknown. She seemed to lie a little closer. A hot flame licked up from his belly to his chest. But it was too soon. She rose and went across the room to a drawer, taking out a little tray-cloth. There was something quiet and professional about her. She had been a nurse beside her husband, both in Warsaw and in the rebellion afterwards. She proceeded to set a tray. It was as if she ignored Brangwen. He sat up, unable to bear a contradiction in her. She moved about inscrutably. Then, as he sat there, all mused and wondering, she came near to him, looking at him, with wide, grey eyes that almost smiled with a low light. But her ugly, beautiful mouth was still unmoved and sad. He was afraid. His eyes, strained and roused with unusedness, quailed a little before her. He felt himself quailing, and yet he rose, as if obedient to her. He bent and kissed her heavy, sad, wide mouth, that was kissed, and did not alter. Fear was too strong in him. Again he had not got her. She turned away. The vicarage kitchen was untidy, and yet to him beautiful with the untidiness of her and her child. Such a wonderful remoteness there was about her, and then something in touch with him, that made his heart knock in his chest. He stood there and waited, suspended. Again she came to him, as he stood in his black clothes, with blue eyes very bright and puzzled for her, his face tensely alive, his hair dishevelled. She came close up to him, to his intent, black-clothed body, and laid her hand on his arm. He remained unmoved, her eyes, with a blackness of memory, struggling with passion, primitive and electric, away at the back of them, rejected him, and absorbed him at once. But he remained himself, he breathed with difficulty, and sweat came out at the roots of his hair, on his forehead. "'Do you want to marry me?' she asked slowly, always uncertain. He was afraid lest he could not speak. He drew breath hard, saying, "'I do.' Then again, what was agony to him? With one hand lightly resting on his arm, she leaned forward a little, and with a strange, primeval suggestion of embrace, held him her mouth. It was ugly beautiful, and he could not bear it. He put his mouth on hers, and slowly, slowly the response came, gathering force and passion, till it seemed to him she was thundering at him, till he could bear no more. He drew away, white, unbreathing. Only, in his blue eyes, was something of himself concentrated, 
and in her eyes was a little smile upon a black void. She was drifting away from him again, and he wanted to go away. It was intolerable. He could bear no more. He must go. Yet he was irresolute, but she turned away from him. With a little pang of anguish, of denial, it was decided. "'I'll come and speak to the vicar tomorrow,' he said, taking his hat. She looked at him, her eyes expressionless and full of darkness. He could see no answer. "'That'll do, won't it?' he said. "'Yes,' she answered, mere echo without body or meaning. "'Good night,' he said. "'Good night.' He left her standing there, expressionless and void as she was. Then she went on laying the tray for the vicar. Kneading the table, she put the daffodils aside on the dresser without noticing them. Only their coolness, touching her hand, remained echoing there a long while. They were such strangers, they must forever be such strangers, that his passion was a clanging torment to him. Such intimacy of embrace, and such utter foreignness of contact. It was unbearable. He could not bear to be near her, and know the utter foreignness between them, know how entirely there were strangers to each other. He went out into the wind. Big holes were blown into the sky. The moonlight blew about. Sometimes a high moon, liquid brilliant, scudded across a hollow space, and took cover under electric, brown, iridescent cloud edges. Then there was a blot of cloud and shadow. Then somewhere in the night a radiance again, like a vapour, and all the sky was teeming and tearing along, a vast disorder of flying shapes and darkness and ragged fumes of light, and a great brown circling halo. Then the terror of a moon running, liquid brilliant, into the open for a moment, hurting the eyes before she plunged under cover of cloud again. End of chapter 1, part 2 Read by Tony Foster